What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. So we will spend this entire hour as we have the past several Mondays focused exclusively on the siege taking place on Gaza and the global resistance to that siege exploding around the globe. Our, si- our guest today is Linda Sarasor, a Brooklyn-born Palestinian Muslim American activist, author, and community organizer. She's the author of her memoir, We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders, and founder of Empower. Good morning, my sister, Linda. Thank Good you so morning, much for Good morning, Kat. Good morning. I appreciate you. I'm happy to be here. I know you're running a bazillion miles uh, a minute, so deeply appreciate you taking the time. We can walk through some of the news headlines shortly, but I'd just like to get your take of the current situation in Palestine and the latest in terms of Israeli attacks on Gaza. And specifically, then, if you could segue to the state of affairs with Al-Shifa Hospital. I appreciate you, uh, Kat, for continuing to give this um, priority and to continue to talk about this. It is um, a very devastating situation right now, almost five weeks into um, the uh, attacks on Gaza since the October 7th um, attack in Israel. It's uh, We're about now at almost 12,000 um, dead bodies, including a couple of potentially uh, hundreds that are still under the rubble, many of whom are children. Over 5,000 children have been massacred at the hands of the state of Israel. As you know, multiple hospitals in Gaza are out of operation because of the lack of fuel, the lack of electricity. Uh, There are children. There's about 35 um, babies right now who are, uh, were in the intensive care units who are without uh, uh, fuel, so those babies are dying slowly. Um, and so there have been already about four babies that we know of that have already died, multiple patients who are on ventilators that have also uh, passed away. The Israeli uh, military, as you know, is in a ground invasion as well. So people need to understand this is not just bombing from the skies. This is bombing from the skies and ground operations with tanks and sniper and um and of course, you know, direct fighting with um, Hamas fighters. And so the people are being caught in crossfire as well. And it's just devastating that the uh, attacks have started um, getting closer and targeting hospitals. And we know of, um, you know, doctors who have refused to leave patients to evacuate because there are some t- patients that are just immobile. There's just no way to evacuate them. They don't have they're not, they may not be able to walk to southern Gaza, which is where they're being told to evacuate. And as you know, in the past, we've seen the Israeli government even bomb the south in Gaza. So it's really nowhere nowhere is safe. But this, this particular targeting of hospital, I think it's all egregious. It's all heinous. It's all outrageous. But to be targeting hospitals with vulnerable, vulnerable people who are um, wounded, some who were already terminally ill before this happened and were at the hospital. It's just, it's just a level and levels of evil that I just can't personally um, comprehend. Um, over 1 million people, as you know, more than that now are displaced. Uh, these are people sheltering in southern Gaza. And you know that the Gaza Strip is not a large piece of land. So imagining it was already a densely populated strip of land of 2.2 million people. And imagine half of the population has now joined the other half in even a more densely populated area without adequate food, without adequate water. I mean, people are drinking sips and sips of water just to, just to you know, try to get as much out of it as possible and, and saving as much water that, as they can. 
um, I heard a story from folks that I know where they were taking flour and, and dripping water on the flour, making a dry dough and making it in, into little balls to feed the children so they could try to stay as full as possible until they get more access to food. I mean, it's just devastating. And the thing that makes it for me personal is not only that I'm Palestinian, and of course, those are my people. Um, it's also that I'm an American and Kat, we are the ones paying for that. We are, we have sent billions of dollars to the state of Israel to occupy and to terrorize the Palestinian people. And now we're watching a full on genocide happening with our taxpayer dollars. And you know, when the shrapnel falls, the children pick up the shrapnel and they know that it's made in the United States of America. In fact, one of the missiles types of missiles that they use is made by an American company called Lockheed Martin. And the tip of the missile is literally four blades. So not only does it bomb, but when it hits a body, it will shred the body into pieces. I mean, it is absolutely vulgar at every level and unfortunately paid by U.S. taxpayers. Linda, given the targeting of hospitals, your response to the fact that the American Medical Association, the largest medical association in the world, has said no to supporting a ceasefire. I mean, I sometimes think, Kat, I'm living in the twilight zone. I mean, doctors across the world take an oath um, at, and, and to protect the sanctity of life. Your job as a doctor is to do everything in your power to save somebody's life. Like, whatever you got to do, you got to do to save someone's life, right, to make sure that you are doing whatever you can so that they stay alive. The fact that the American Medical Association would block a resolution to call for an end to bloodshed which, as you know, Kat, is in the best interest of Palestinian civilians as well as hostages. What people don't seem to understand is that when you are carpet bombing an entire strip of land that includes the, the hostages who are being held captive in that strip of land, those missiles do not discriminate. And so the American Medical Association needs to understand that they not only took a position to devalue the sanctity of Palestinian life, but they are also have taken a position on hostages as well. The people who are calling for ceasefire, Kat, are the people who care about the sanctity of all life. And that is what I want people to understand. It is a bare minimum for anyone, including those, especially those in the medical professional, to be in a position to say, we as medical doctors, as medical professionals, we will not stand by idly while there is a massacre that is happening. So me personally, if, I, if there was some international body these people's licenses should be revoked. I mean, it is absolutely outrageous that there are doctors who are watching a bloodshed happen, a massacre happen, and saying, we will block a resolution that's calling for an end to bloodshed. I think the hostages point is really important, that they too are being bombed, and yet that is one of the quote-unquote reasons Israel is saying that they are attacking Gaza and, and will not stop until they get the hostages. What does that say to you about that argument? It tells me that Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't give a damn about the hostages. And one of the reasons why it's even more outrageous is because I read Israeli media and they, the Benjamin Netanyahu administration has met with the hostages. The hostages have also been met with, excuse me, the hostage families. And some of those families have actually been protesting outside um, uh, of Netanyahu and the kind of government buildings, basically saying, you do what you got to do to get our people out. And if that means swapping hostages for political prisoners, you do that. That is what the families are saying. The families are saying, 
you need to do everything that you can in your power to get our people home safely. And that's what people want, Kat. If you want the hostages home with their families, and we want those, especially the women and the elderly and the civilian hostages, prioritizing their release back to their families, and we want them to be alive and breathing. If you want them to be alive and breathing, you need to call for a ceasefire right now. And that's, in fact, what their families are calling from. So if you claim to care about hostages, then align with the families. And we, you know, immediately after the horrific October 7th attacks, there were family members that came out in the first two, three, four days later and said that massacring people or Palestinians will not resurrect my brother, right? That people it, it, that, that are supposed to be the most personally connected, the people who lost their loved ones, did not have a vengeance bone in their body. And while they knew what happened was horrific, they also did not say, go ahead, kill them all. And that's the people, those are the voices of reason that we need in this moment. And those voices of reason are calling for ceasefire and saying to the Israeli government, do whatever it is in your power to get our family members back. Carpet bombing Gaza is not going to be safe or is not the, the solution to get the hostages. Because at the same time that the Palestinian civilians are literally dying in the thousands, those missiles do not discriminate, Cat, And we have no idea how many of those hostages have been impacted by the indiscriminate bombing and now the ground invasion by the state of Israel. Linda, you launched into this work, as I understand, after 9-11 and when Arab communities were being stalked by the U.S. government and targeted by vigilantes. I'm wondering if you can tell that story, but then segue into what similar patterns you are seeing reemerge today in this political context. I really appreciate that, Kat, because I thought, you know, usually when you become an activist and or an organizer, you hope that, you know, 22 years later after I've done this work that we would be in a better place. And I find myself in the same place, if not a worse place than I was when I originally came into this work. I didn't ask to be an a, a organizer or an activist, Kat, and I know a lot of people of color and black folks who are in the movement, they didn't ask for this either. We all had dreams and aspirations. And, that, and a lot of us end up being here because we have to be here. And for me, um, as a New Yorker and as a Muslim, and the immediate events um, or the horrific attacks of 9-11, they, they came from my people immediately. They had The United States government decided that Muslims in America who had absolutely nothing to do with the horrific attacks of 9-11 somehow were the enemy within, that somehow we were connected to something that had nothing to do with us. The United States government immediately targeted Muslims all across the United States of America with discriminatory, uh, discriminatory policies. They detained thousands of Muslim men across this country. 10% of them went into deportation after registering with the U.S. government after a discriminatory policy called the NCRS program. We saw the unwarranted and continue to see the unwarranted surveillance of Muslim communities, the, the, the increase in hate crimes against Muslims and those perceived to be Muslims, the, the cases of bullying across the country, not just at the hands of other students, but also faculty and staff of public schools and universities across the country, vandalisms of mosques. You remember the mosque opposition campaigns across the country where people would literally stand in a community board zoning meeting and literally want to block the right of Muslims to build religious institutions in the land that's supposed to be the land of the you know freedom of religion. And so that's the work that I got into and, and been doing for the last 22 years. And I find myself, and one of the things that is also parallel is the way in which the United States government continues to 
put out false information and do and, and engage in propaganda. Um, and that is what they did immediately after the horrific attacks of 9-11, where we ended up going into an unjust war in Afghanistan. And then we went to war in Iraq and we, we, we sold the American people a lie that there was weapons of mass destruction. And we had to get to, you know, we had to go to Iraq and destroy the Saddam Hussein administration. And we had to do all this thing to protect the American people and to protect democracy and all this other good stuff. And we're going to make Iraq into a democratic state. And we killed over 1 million people in Iraq and over 12,000 American soldiers. And guess what? 20 years later, Kat, they come to us and say, oops, turns out there was no weapons of mass destruction. So we sold the American people a lie and most Americans allowed it to happen. Again, our taxpayer dollars that literally took the lives of over a million people and decimated an incredible country that literally was home to a lot of original civilization. And here we are again, propaganda, trying to sell the American people this idea that we have to support the state of Israel. We have to eradicate this terrorist group, uh, you know, the vilification and criminalization of the Palestinian people, the talking points around literally telling the, 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 the message that gets sent to a lot of ordinary people around the world is that Gaza equals Hamas, Hamas equals Gaza. And that. That, that being sold over the years has allowed many people to stay silent in this moment. They're watching the carpet bombing of an innocent civilians, again, over 11,000 innocent civilians in Gaza. And some people may think 11,000 cat is not a large number of people, but you have to look at it proportionately to the population. 11,000 of only 2.2 million people. I mean, if we wanted to compare that proportion or that percentage of the population to the United States, it would be a number that we would be, it would, we, the, this country would be in chaos right now if that same percentage of people here would, would, would be, we would have these, this level of dead bodies across, across the, the country. And so, you know, the, 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 the language that's being used by the administration, we're going to be assessing domestic threats, for example, right? Um, you know, when, when they say domestic threats, cat, they mean Muslims. They mean people that are of Arab descent. That's the kind of language we heard after the 9-11, the post-9-11 attacks. The monitoring of people's free speech, the censoring of free speech across this country, instilling fear in people who want to speak up for justice, who want to speak up on behalf of the Palestinian people. I mean, the instilling of fear in students across this country on college campuses. I mean, we are living in a time of fear that people that just want us that live in the land of the you know, free and the brave are not allowed to be free and brave right now because they are saying something that is in opposition to the position that the United States government is taking. And I tell people all the time, Kat, that the government has never taken the right side. They are never on the right side of an issue. And, and, and oftentimes, I would say 95 percent of the time, they're not on the right side. And the state of Israel, you know, the, 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 the state of Israel, for example, both the United States and the state of Israel supported South African apartheid. You know, when we, when we think about the many times across the world where there were people rising up and there were liberation movements rising up um, that were, you know, seeded from the ground, the United States oftentimes stood on the wrong side. And so it's, 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 it's really in the hands of the American people. Are we going to continue to allow the United States government to use our taxpayer dollars to literally murder brown people across the world and more brown people across the world? And I think that the American people, or at least many more of them, have woken up on Israel in a way that they have not before. You cannot deny what your eyes see. Somebody could sell me something 
if I haven't looked at it unfiltered in a different way. And right now, social media is probably the biggest nightmare that the state of Israel um, has had to experience because there is no way that you can tell someone who is watching babies ble- being blown up to pieces, mothers crying for their children, 50,000 pregnant women who are getting no care and are being told to walk miles to southern Gaza, you know, elderly who are literally asked to walk miles, the lack of food and water. Now we're getting to the point of the war crimes where people are dying of not bombing, they're dying of starvation. They're dying of thirst. And this is, this is, this is what I keep telling people, like, it is, gets dire and more dire and more dire every day. And so, again, I feel, you know, after 9-11, and you know this, cat, I've been, you know, the opposition has had me for a long time. And, you know, I, it's just like you and others, you know, we, we go through it because our people count on us. And I made an oath that I'm going to, you know, do what I do. And no matter the consequences, I'm willing to take them all. But if you see the type of opposition we have right now, it is, uh, uh, it is vicious. It is vile. I literally showed Tamika this morning. I wake up in the morning. We are um, in Louisville, Kentucky, at the trial of police officer Brett Hankinson, which is one of the police officers that was um, involved in the murder of Breonna Taylor. And we wake up early this morning to get to court. And the minute I open my eyes, I'm reading these vile emails, including one where someone is literally calling for my children to be raped. I mean, these the, the viciousness of it all, the evilness of it all, is absolutely like, un- I, I just can't, you know, tell you, Kat, how not only is there an injustice happening in Palestine, and I don't care where the injustice is, I'm going to talk about it. It doesn't have to be people who are my people. That's just not who I am. I will fight for whoever needs to be fought for. But to have to fight for your own people and still organize and still be outside and still do other work that is aligned with who I am, and you want to threaten my life, on top of that, it's level on level on level that is that is just a lot for one or a few of us to bear, but we got to just do it. There's nothing else that I can do. That really resonated with me. The first, the mm-hmm. very first threat against my life included that same threat against my daughter, mm-hmm. who at the time mm-hmm. was like four years old. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Um mm-hmm. Yes, more Americans are waking up. I mean, you know, I've been 10 toes down for Palestine for a really Mm -hmm. long time. And I've never seen this many people in the streets. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and yet, even with millions of folks in the streets here in America and across the globe, um, we barrel towards a 2024 presidential election. And I heard you speak on this briefly when we last saw each other a few weeks ago. But I'd like you to talk about what you think America's continued support of this genocide is going to have on what many of our folks are now calling genocide Joe's re-election possibilities. Who has he lost? You know, I don't know, Kat, who works at the Democratic Party, and I don't know who's advising the president, but they need to be fired. Um, I would fire them right. immediately. Um, you know, one of the things that I have to say, Kat, to folks is like, you know, I haven't really put my strategic mind on, you know, my strategic political mind for 2024 on yet. So a lot of the speak that you hear is a lot coming from a lot of emotion. And what I will say to folks is that Biden had already lost a lot of people before the Gaza situation even started. I mean, people have to understand that when Joe Biden was elected, he was elected because we wanted to defeat 
a fascist administration, and we did not want Donald Trump to be our president for four more years. That is why Joe Biden became the president. He didn't become the president because we thought he was a stellar candidate or because we thought he was going to transform the American people. There was a message that we were trying to send to people in this country who vote for people like Donald Trump, and that was really what happened. So that's the first mistake that they're making, that they actually think that Joe Biden is a good candidate and is a compelling candidate. He was just the alternative uh, to a fascist. That's really what Joe Biden was. And remember when we elected Joe Biden, he for two years, Kat, had a trifecta. It was a Democratic White House. They had a majority in the House and they had a majority in the Senate. And Joe Biden still couldn't get his act together and do some of the most critical things that he promised on that campaign trail. Number one, the George Floyd and Policing Act was dead on arrival. The protection of voting rights, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, you, you want to commemorate a man for the sacrifices he made, but you couldn't even pass a piece of legislation to protect voting rights because you couldn't get cinema and, and, and mansion from West Virginia's act together. You couldn't even put your own people in line. You, wanna, you, you have women up, uh, rising up across this country on women's reproductive rights. You could have codified Roe. The immigrants have been fighting for almost two decades for immigration reform, and you couldn't even do that. I mean, there have been so many fields that you couldn't pass child income uh, tax credit. Like, there was so many opportunities in the two years to pass legislation that really could have transformed the lives of Americans, and you weren't able to do that. Then the student debt and the young people that rose up around the student debt relief, and then you came up with something to appease the folks. And the young people, cat are very intelligent people. Like, you will not appease them with some crumbs. You need to get yourself together, especially knowing that you have power, at least on this particular issue. So my point, Kat, is that what we, I'm not going to accept that people in 2024, if Joe Biden were to lose the election, to start blaming the pro-Palestinian movement in America for the defeat of Joe Biden. If Joe Biden loses, that is Joe Biden's fault. That is the people who are around Joe Biden that have not fulfilled the promises to the American people, especially those that were some of the key constituencies that helped Joe Biden in office. You know, Kat, I organized in Georgia, right? And in Georgia, the people that were knocking the doors in Georgia were abolitionists, were immigrant rights folks. They're the people that the administration or the candidate campaign at the time said, oh, we're not with that defund police. We don't agree with those people. We're not with, we don't do, abolition is not that we, we don't align. But those people still put their self-righteousness to the side and said, we still got to do the right thing. We got to make sure that Donald Trump doesn't win Georgia. So my point is, is that he already had lost people. And this is the icing on the cake because good people, regular good people, ordinary people, cat will not sit idly by when they're watching a genocide unfold on their timelines on social media. They're watching this close up, no filters, no filtered by CNN or MSNBC or CBS. They're watching it in a way that is so personal to them that they see their children in the children of Palestine. And when they find out that their money, that you're paying for that, it takes people to another level. So, and the fact that their administration, all, all we're asking, Kat, we're not even asking Joe Biden to say free Palestine. We're not even asking him to do what really needs to be done, which is end the military occupation of Palestine, lift the blockade on Gaza. Uh, none of that. We're just saying you have the power to demand an end to bloodshed, that you are footing the military bill of the state of Israel, you actually can pick up the phone and say, hey, I will not send you a penny if you don't stop this right now. And as you know, there have been a couple of opportunities for a deal, 
around ceasefire slash hostages that the Netanyahu administration has, in fact, rejected. And that is something that is public and it is also can be found in Israeli media. And when asked, when Biden was asked just a couple of days ago about the possibility of a ceasefire, he said there was absolutely none, not at all, no possibility. Not at all. You know what's wild about that, Kat, is that a couple of weeks ago, the the, prime, the French Prime Minister Macron was in the same place as Joe Biden. He was like, he was basically like, Israel, you do you, do what you got to do, we got you. And he was, you know, against the, the sentiments of the French people. And as you know, the, the people in France rise up because there's a lot of folks, um, you know, North African folks and, <laughs> excuse me, a large Muslim population out there and, of course, allies. They were outside and it was they were so outside that the French government was trying to literally ban any pro-Palestinian protest. They were trying to ban the, the flying of the Palestinian flag. I mean, they were trying everything. And the French people know a concept that I wish the American people understood, which is they may be able to arrest one person and even 10 and even 100 and even a thousand. But you can't arrest a half a million people. You can't arrest 200,000 people. So the people in France continue to disobey and they continue to go outside and assemble, demanding that their government call for a ceasefire. And guess what? Three days ago, Prime Minister Macron was on international television basically saying, all right, now enough is enough. Israel has to stop. We are now calling for a ceasefire. We also know that Germany has joined the call. So my thing is, like, I want to tell, let people know that don't believe the hype that protest doesn't work. you got to stay outside. Anytime you hear that there's a mobilization, don't say no one's going to count me, no one's going to know I'm there. One plus one plus one plus one is mass mobilization. And so I'm very proud of the people that are going outside, every, some people every day, some people every mm-hmm. weekend, whatever it is, showing up is important. And that way, while our president is, you know, listen, every day that is delayed, cat from a ceasefire we just got to know that hundreds of more die every day and that's the that's the stake you know how sometimes people say a certain thing is a matter of life and death this in fact ceasefire is a matter of life and death and that's how urgent it is i want people to know that we're not just being like woke activists and this is like a social justice cause that we're on and you know people have been fighting for palestine like you said cat for decades this moment we're in right now is literally literally a matter of life and death I don't know if this is the right question to be asking right now. And you can say, Kat, this is not the right question to be asking right now. Um, but for decades, right, the world has bantered about the solutions, one state, two state, democracy, mm-hmm. et cetera. After this moment, because I've literally been trying to wrap my head around this. If a ceasefire happened today, after mm-hmm. this brutality, this viciousness, what possible road to peace is there? I mean, we've heard from so many of our kind of mentors, our, you know, our ancestors, you cannot have peace without justice. And the Palestinian people, they are in a, on a they are seeking freedom and liberation. They, Palestinian people are demanding in this moment a ceasefire to end the bloodshed. But we know that if, if we do not go beyond a ceasefire and engage in supporting the Palestinian people to their self-determination and a free Palestine, we're going to just keep being in the cycle every decade, every six years, sometimes every eight years. It's not going to work. And what, what I need people to understand is like, you know, we do have this conversation, one state or two states. And 
really at the end of the day, Kat, it is the people in Palestine that get to determine what their fate is. And maybe it's that the Palestinian people want to start, you know, you, you evolve over time. Right now, as you know, we only have 12% of historic Palestine. So imagine somebody has 100% of a land and now we only have 12% of our land. And so I don't like to speak on behalf of the Palestinians who live there, who have lived under siege, who have lived under occupation, because I'm a privileged American who lives in the diaspora. But for now, the one thing that I know can't happen and and something that I actually heard the Secretary of State of the United States, Anthony Blinken, said, and you know me, I give no credit to this administration on anything and words are only words, but they're important words in this case. And he said, Anthony Blinken said to Netanyahu, he said, listen here, when this war is over, just want to make it clear that the state of Israel will not resume the occupation of Gaza, that it will not be under Israeli rule. And that is exactly what Netanyahu wants. He wants the, the, the plan here is that they want to recapture Gaza. That is the point here, because there's no way that you are decimating almost half the country. Like it is, it is flat. They have destroyed over 40,000 housing units. I mean, it is, it is flat to the ground in most parts of northern Gaza right now. They want to encroach back on that piece of land, and we have to, around the world, say absolutely not. We are not going to allow that to happen. So it was important to hear Antony Blinken say that, knowing that we know that the intention is to recapture um, Gaza. So, so for me, just for folks that are saying, you know, sometimes people argue with us, cat, and they say two-state solution. And I will just say this about the two-state solution, which was a proposal on the table for decades. I want you to imagine for people who say we need a two-state solution is the only way to go. In the current form that we are in, right, in the current structure of Palestine versus the state of Israel, I want people to imagine what they're saying. Because you got, when you're talking, you've got you to be speaking logically, right? Imagine I tell you that in the United States of America, there is an occupation that's happening. And imagine us saying, Kat, New York and California can become a state together. So coast to coast, only the coast, each coast, we become. How is that possible logistically that New York and California are going to be one state, but then you have the entire middle of America from the north to the south almost that's occupied, that we won't have jurisdiction over, that we can't get from New York. I can't get from New York to California. How are we one state if I can't get from New York to California? And that's how it's set up. If you look at any map now of the West Bank and Gaza, there's the logistically saying a two-state solution doesn't even make sense. And the other thing that would have to happen in order for there to be a two-state solution is that the state of Israel would have to agree to dismantle all of the settlements in the West Bank. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of settlers that are on occupied land that have literally built entire communities in the middle of our villages, in the middle of our neighborhoods, like with no accountability, stealing the olive trees and the land of generations and generations of Palestinians. So, so I just say to folks, when you hear the talking point from politicians of a two-state solution, it sounds good, but it is logistically impossible. You brought up MSNBC and, and, and CNN, and we've spent some time this morning, of course, talking about the complicity of our government mm-hmm. in what is happening. Can you talk about the complicity of U.S. media in what's happening, even on our oh, yeah, so-called I- liberal news outlets? Yes, ma'am. I mean, listen, I mean, listen, Mal- I always say to people, you know, sometimes we, 
we talk about people in, in the past tense, like folks like our brother Malcolm X, Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz, <clears throat> our ancestors already told us all of this, that the media has the power to make you hate the oppressed and love the oppressor, right? That the media is the most powerful um, entity. And it is. And it's the power of words. Like, for example, Kat, how is it possible that you would use terms like the people of Israel or the, or the 1,200 people killed on October 7th, the Israelis were killed? But then you talk about the Palestinians and say they died. How could one people be killed and one people die? Did the Palestinians just magically drop dead? That's the power yeah. of words. Because when you say that a group of people died, then you remove all accountability and you remove the perpetrator from that conversation. You know, when I think about the ways in which the U.S. media has pushed this kind of frame around Ukraine, right? Ukraine has every right to defend itself from Russian invasion, right? That the people of Ukraine have a right to self-determination and a right to self-defense. And they will never apply that same concept in the same context for the Palestinian people, right? And of course, we know why, because the Palestinian people ain't the right color and, and they're not the right religion, even though, as you know, there are also Christians that live within Gaza as well. And so the, 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 the U.S. media, listen, the other day I saw a post from uh, uh, CNN Fareed Zakaria, who basically said that in order for, the, the, for you as a media outlet, as a foreign media outlet, to get approval to cover uh, on the ground what's happening in Gaza, you have to share your footage with the Israeli military before it's published. I couldn't even believe people are saying that out loud. So the occupier has to review your, your, your footage before they're able to publish your, your footage. And that's what's so powerful about what's happening in Gaza right now is that those photojournalists that are on the ground, the folks that so many people have learned about, like Mu'taz Azaizeh and Ahmed Hijazi and Plessia and Bisan and all these accounts of photojournalists who are giving you unfiltered, like, talk straight to the people right outside the hospitals, you know, right in the refugee camp are literally the competition for U.S. media right now because U.S. media is, is, is in, a, in a state where they can no longer control the narrative or control, like even the Israeli government, who has been a long time pretty good at pop propaganda, Cat. I ain't going to lie. But they lost their propaganda war. You know, recently, I don't know if you saw a senior Israeli official posted a video claiming that it was a video that was from Gaza. But in fact, what it was, it was a clip of a film that was made in Lebanon, right? It's actually, it was like literally actors were in it. And you were posting it thinking that the ordinary people are stupid and they wouldn't figure out that it was actually a movie that you were posting. You know, there have been many times where, uh, for example, uh, two days ago, there was a woman who was claiming that she was a doctor in Al-Shifa Hospital wearing a hijab. And she's talking, and, you know, as you know, some Israelis do speak the Arabic language because, you know, it's one of the languages that is most widely spoken in Israel. And she was claiming that she was um, in Shifa Hospital and that the Hamas fighters, that she wanted to leave, but the Hamas fighters were in the hospital and they were pointing guns at them and they weren't letting them leave. Turns out, and I could tell by her accent that she wasn't, like, a, a Palestinian, and she got exposed. So people are like, you know, the, the propaganda is, is, is not only always dangerous, but it's also not good. And it's, people are seeing right through it, Kat. And I, and I appreciate all the people of all walks of life that are online, that are sharing the content coming out of photojournalists and basically saying, we are not 
going to be hoodwinked this time. We see what we see, and we can't unsee what we see. And really, it's, it's a turning point for the Palestinian solidarity movement. So if there's a, a silver lining, as they say here, is that more people are aware about what's happening in Palestine, but also how complicit we are as Americans and our government is, and the amount of people showing up to, to the streets, people calling. Democrats in, in Congress have told me never have they received this type, these types of calls in the, in, the, in the numbers, in the sheer numbers. They're like, our phone rings off the hook, people demanding that our members call for ceasefire. So I want people to know, like, it, it doesn't go unnoticed. Like, keep calling. Wake up every day and call and call and say, I'm a voter. I'm a constituent. I won't forget. I need my member to call for ceasefire. And I, and I, I believe that, that that voice is being heard now. And even if your member is not calling for a ceasefire, I promise you that these calls are going to make them do a little bit more technical calculations on how far they're willing to go for the state of Israel in, in, the, in future votes. I mean, so many calls that we saw congressional staffers walk out last week. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. There were, you know, it, it, it was inspiring to see just a, such a diverse array of yeah. people um, just coming out, walking outside. And these are staffers of some of the congressional members who uh, don't support ceasefire. Um, we've seen, you know, uh, artists come out and call for ceasefire, all kinds of artists. We've seen health professionals come out for ceasefire. We, we've seen all kinds of people, Kat, and that's one of the things that I always say to people, you know how beautiful the Palestinian solidarity movement, if you want to, if you want to know if you're on the right side, Kat, you have to be on the right side where you look around you and you see black and white and you see Latino and Asian American Pacific Islanders, you see Muslims, Jews, Christians, atheists, you see young people and old people, you see children, you see grandma. When I go to these rallies, I look around and I say, this is the America that I want to live in. I want to live amongst good people who see harm and see bloodshed and say, not on our watch. We don't want this. We don't want to fund this. People who are supporting something as simple as the sanctity of life and saying that, that, that these children don't deserve this, right? Those are the people, when I march, it's the safest place. At, you know, people will say, there's cops everywhere, and I get that, cat. But between you and me, when I'm walking in a rally, it is the safest place in America for me because those people around me, got me they, they got me and I got them. And it's a very beautiful feeling of solidarity. People are like, Linda, it's dangerous. Why are you always outside? Why are you always going to these rallies? People know how you look. People know who you are. I don't care, Kat. I want to be amongst these people because these are the people that give me that hope, that, that resilience, that make me want to keep going forward and moving forward. All right, Linda, I'm going to let you get back to what I know is a very, very busy day. Thank you so much for taking the time, and I'm sending you so much love. I appreciate you, Kat. God bless you, um, and I'll definitely see you soon. Yes. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.